millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, Ruben. Hi, Teddy. One by one, the boys in the marketplace slowly disappeared. And they were usually orphans or runaways. They were aged anywhere from 6 to 16 fending for themselves on the street. So nobody really noticed. Did they find jobs or go back to their families? Nobody really cared. Or were they being hunted, trapped and killed by a middle-aged monster? Hi, I'm Teddy. And I'm Ruben. And welcome to A Briefcase. This week, we're concluding the crimes of Javed Iqbal, one of Pakistan's most prolific serial killers. He was a pedophile, rapist and murderer who killed a hundred boys in almost less than a year. So if you haven't listened yet, you can catch up on last week's episode where we explore Javed's early life, how he started manipulating and abusing young boys and the possible incident that he alleged triggered his descent and escalation into not just rape but murder. to start with kind of painting an image of what kind of person he was then. And Pakistan at that point of time, and Pakistan now is reasonably conservative and very traditional. So to let you know what kind of person Javed was, Javed's parents actually were pressuring him into getting married at one point. And what he did was a little bit messed up. So he actually married one of the sisters of one of the boys that he was grooming in order to manipulate the boy into staying with him. And somehow it's reported that he even had kids. He had two kids. Hmm. But it was, it's still very clear that his preference were young boys. And now, unfortunately, Pakistan then and Pakistan now also had a lot of abandoned children, a lot of orphaned children, and a lot of children who just ran away because of their home situation. And so Javed would walk the streets in the market square and he would ask them, he would be like, Hello, I'm looking for a servant, a maid, a helper of sorts to help me with my daily tasks. And this wasn't very unusual because a lot of richer families and a lot of richer people, even middle class people, they would take in these boys to work for them. And in many cases, it was basically indentured servitude, like wage slavery. And in some of the more unfortunate cases, it was not unheard of in these regions for older men to take in younger boys to to be their workers, their house workers, and also somebody who was essentially their personal sex worker. And the thing is that historically, it's been written about in the context of like quote-unquote love, poetry, about these kind of relationships. Hmm. But I think it's just like very gross. It's very disgusting. It's just very gross, candy coating something that's very often abusive. Now, Javet did have a couple of boys living with him. And in the marketplace, like just for context, there were also boys 
that offered massages to older men. And these massages were usually about 20 rupees, which is very, very little. And sometime in November 1999, we know that this is around the middle of his killing spree. He goes into the marketplace and he offers one of these kids 50 rupees to massage him, which is like much higher, it's like double their rate. Mm. And at that point of time, he was already crippled. He was already injured. And he claimed to the boy that he was partially paralyzed and that he needed a massage for his paralysis. And the boy's name was Ijaz. So now at first, Ijaz went to Javed's house with his younger brother. But when he was there, he sent his younger brother away. He's like, oh, actually, we don't really need you for any more help. And one interesting thing that Javed did was when he was on his murder spree, he actually recorded the details of each of the kids that he killed. And I don't know if it was like a genuine, okay, I'm going to remember everybody that I killed. Or it was kind of like, you know how serial killers take trophies? this would have been like a trophy killer. Okay, so now we know Ijaz was a teenager and he was probably in his mid-teens, which I assume is like 14 or 15, but that's still very, very young when you look at 14 and 15-year-olds. And now because of photo evidence, we know that Javed probably gave Ijaz a new t-shirt and from confessions, we know that he gave him a drink with a sedative. So this was his M.O., And while the sedative began to kick in, he began to kind of interview the boy, which he recorded in either his 32-page notebook or his diary. He had a 32-page notebook and a diary that they recovered. And while Javed has said that the reason why he did this was to make note of each of these kind of abandoned street children, I, I think that he only said that to make himself seem like a better person after committing murder, you know? Mm. And some people have also speculated, and I don't disagree, that it was a method of manipulation to make these kids feel special and make them drop their guard as they get drowsy. And once the victim started to get too weak and started to pass out, he would rape them. And then when he was done, he would get an iron chain, wrap it around the neck, and then kill his victim. And it's a little bit confusing as well. So the photo of Ijaz shows that he was his 57th victim. It was marked down as his 57th victim. Okay. And it's a little bit confusing as well because the photo showed that he was his 57th victim. But actually, from his written logs, we know that he's probably his 97th victim. Oh. And after that, he would hack each of his victims into small pieces and he would dissolve the bodies in a vat of hydrochloric acid. And if you, like a lot of people, you're like, wow, there's a lot of hydrochloric acid that you have in your house. Mm. According to him, it only costs 120 rupees to dissolve each victim. That's like like a dollar, maybe two dollars. Oh, okay, so then where did he get all of the acid from? Actually, that's an interesting question. I think you can just buy it in mm. Pakistan. Like, interesting. pretend that you're like using it for commercial reasons. Mm. I think if you try to buy that much hydrochloric acid in Singapore, you would like... like why would you even go to buy it? Like, <laughs> can't go to the store, NTUC. <laughs> I bet like in, you know, those kind of trading countries, you just like know a guy. Mm. 
Maybe. So now Javet would also keep the clothes and shoes of each of the boys in like a neat little bundle, which is why I feel like the notebook thing was also like a trophy more than uh, a sympathy thing. And so eventually this is how parents had to identify their children if their children, their missing children, had been a victim of his, which is incredibly sad. And now at first... He was waiting for the body to liquefy. He had to wait for the body to fully liquefy. And once it was fully liquefied, he would dump the remains in a nearby sewer or a nearby drain. But then his neighbours complained. Oh. And I don't blame them because I think... I don't think that I would be able to recognise a vet of dissolved human body. But I would be very annoyed. I would think that it was some sort of leftover chemical waste from his business, like chemical processing or something like that. And so after his neighbours started to complain, he started to dump the hydrochloric acid mix directly into the Ravi River, which is one of the six major rivers in Pakistan, and also a massive environmental hazard, which just adds on to what kind of terrible, awful person he was. Mm. And what is interesting is that I think because of how he did it and the circumstances of his environment, which included corruption and massive mistrust in the police and justice systems. I really feel if this next part didn't happen, he could have probably gone on to keep killing people for another, at least another decade. So about a month later, and probably three more victims later, and you, and you really think about it, this is like a hundred victims in... So Javet, he sends a letter to the police and to the chief news editor of a major newspaper confessing to the rape and murder of a hundred boys. And in this letter, he lays out exactly how he did it, how he raped, strangled and murdered each of the boys and how he got rid of the bodies. And the police, of course, they go to his house and they find a chain, they find the photographs, they found um, the notes containing the notes of each of the boys and they found two vats of acid. He had the audacity to leave two vats of acid with bodies dissolving in there and leave a note saying that the bodies in the house were left so that the police would be able to find it and corroborate his story. Like, he wanted to out himself as like, look at me, this is what I did. And then he said that he was going to drown himself in the Ravi River, the same river that he was throwing his chemical waste in. But when the police actually started looking for him, they spent a lot of resources dragging the river with nets. He was nowhere to be found. So, okay, so what I think is that he felt that he was going to get caught soon. That's why he used this as like a red herring to be like, I killed myself and then lived the rest of his life free. And so, I think the police had the same idea where they suspected that he was still alive. And so they held what was the biggest manhunt in Pakistan's history. Now, we know that Javed probably didn't do this alone. But what I suspect is that the boys that he got to do it with him were also manipulated into this. Because at that point of time, when this was happening, during his killing spree, he shared his home with four other teenage boys in a three-bedroom flat. But these boys, they were considered his accomplices, but I think that at some point of time, they would have also have been his victims. Mm. So they managed to arrest the four teenage boys in a region called Sohawa. And at that point of time, we won't dismiss the fact that the police were very questionable. Within a couple of days of arrest, right, one of the boys ends up dying. 
And according to the police, he allegedly jumped from a window. But they did a post-mortem and it suggested that he was the victim of some sort of brutality. Oh dear. Yes, which is, I think, not, again, very unfortunate, but not unusual for that region in particular. Hmm. And Javert was on the run for about a month until he eventually turned himself in, not at a police station, but instead at the offices of a newspaper called The Daily Jang. Daily Jang. The Daily Jang. Hmm. And he gave himself on a day in December 1999. And the thing is that he didn't give himself up because he was feeling bad or because he was feeling remorseful. Instead, he gave himself up because he was scared that the police would catch him and then kill him. And so actually the whole I'm going to commit suicide thing, like when you really look at it, was a a ploy to throw off the police. Javert was formally charged with the murders in February 2000. And we have a lot of these details because at first, he had a confession, which he later retracted. In court, he actually pled not guilty. So a lot of people and many of the parents of the boys, because not all the boys were orphans, many of the parents were actually pushing for the death sentence. Mm. He was sentenced to death to be strangled in front of the parents using the same chain that he used to kill his victims. And for each of the children, he was sentenced to be cut to a hundred pieces and this was a very controversial sentencing because a lot of people were like oh seems a bit brutal like you know most of the other countries where there's a death sentence that's just like a very standardized way on how you're killed like in singapore it's by long drop hanging and you know what i mean it's just it's standardized the method of death Mm, sure and it also had a little bit of internal controversy in the government, because by right, Pakistan did sign the Human Rights Commission. So this kind of like strangulation and butchering, it, it just doesn't seem right lah. And before anything else could have happened, on 9th October 2001, Javed and one of his accomplices, they were found dead in the Kot Lakpat jail. And at that point of time, Javed was 40 and his accomplice was 20. And they were in separate jail cell- cells that were next to each other in block 7 of the prison, of the jail. Now, first of all, what are the chances that two people commit suicide at the same time? And eventually, when the medical examiner went to look at the bodies afterward, there were signs of wounding and both of them were bleeding from the mouth and nostrils. These are two high-profile prisoners, and there was a guard outside their cells on guard duty, but, oh no, between 10pm and 2am, when the suicides happened, he was asleep. And apparently what happened was that they took their bed sheets and they hung themselves, And when the guard woke up and he saw their bodies hanging, he didn't want to get into trouble. So he took them down and put them on the floor to make them look like they were asleep. Mm. And when the next guard took over, he didn't really bother to check on them because, you know, they're in jail. What could they do? And they're terrible people anyway. So maybe that's why he didn't check on them. And eventually at 5am, the police warden of the prison came to wake them up. And instead, he found that they were both dead. According to that particular jail official as well, it's alleged that Javed had tried to commit suicide many times. But there's no other record of this other than what the official said. But it seems uh, plausible, right? Wouldn't he commit suicide rather than get... Strangled to death? Yeah. I mean... Why wouldn't that be the... Uh, to me, that seems like the most reasonable explanation rather than somebody came and killed him. 
if you, the alternative was that he was going to be strangled to death. I think it's like, you know, like when you're in prison, the pedophiles and rapists and children murderers are like at the bottom of the hierarchy. Yeah. I think a lot of people speculate that this was like jailhouse justice. But that's interesting, right? Because if you knew that he, his punishment be, was worse, yeah, than be worse. <laughs> why would you go and make it easier for him? <laughs> Actually, yeah, that's fair. That's very fair. I don't know the what the the sources that I read this from like framed it in a very different way. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, okay. maybe maybe because of the controversy around the sentencing, they were worried that he wasn't going to get what the judge sentenced. You know what I mean? Right. Maybe. Yeah. I think that if he killed himself, it's a bit of an unsatisfying end. It's, it feels almost it feels very unfair. Yeah. And that was the end of Pakistan's most brutal and prolific serial killer. Thanks for being on the show, Ruben. Thanks, Teddy. On a side note, his family basically disowned him after he exposed himself and nobody picked up his body. Alright, it's good. Yeah, I don't know what happened after that. Maybe they just threw him away. That would have been fair. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to this week's episode of A Briefcase. It's a really dark one and it was a bit uncomfortable, but it's been on my radar for a while. I I just felt so uncomfortable. There's a lot of sources on this and it's not really one of those cases that's talked about a lot. I think because of the subject matter... And I guess it's fair that people would want to just forget about it. So as always, remember, you can drop me a message or tag me at A Briefcase Podcast on Instagram. You can also find us online at abriefcasepodcast.com. And do join us next week for... Another Briefcase. <laughs>